Welcome to episode... What is this? This is episode... 68. We're already We're, starting off great here. I can yeah, already yeah. see. This is great radio. <laughs> episode 68 episode of the Cigar 68. Snob Podcast. <laughs> episode 68 of the Cigar Snob Podcast. We have a uh, special guest in the office today. We're here with... Well, you're not a special guest. We're here with Eric no, Calvino. What's up, bro? Our publisher. And Steve Saka of Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust. Hello, Steve. Thanks for hey, coming. I'm impressed you pronounced my last name correct. That's what, cool. do, what do other people yeah, it's say? Not that hard. You'd be surprised, man. You gotta remember, I grew up in an era. Well, you grew up in when Seika was a big porn star, so uh, you know Seika kind of got a little bit of a, a run there for a while. Oh, when everybody stops this because the podcast yeah. here. Oh yeah, yeah. This, is, yeah this is this is back in the '70s. They went to Google Seika. That's yeah. it. We lost. Them yeah, we lost them already. I'm on it. I have just subscribed to Seika's podcast. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust is uh, the company behind Sin Compromiso, which Cigar Snob, that's us, just named its Cigar of the Year. Number one, baby. That's right. That's number right. one Cigar of the Year. Oh, we normally have a horn in where's this Ivan situation. Where's Ivan with the horn? Yeah. Oh, Ivan's horn is over there. We're going to have a, a horn and, delay. And here. I'm going to tell you flat out... And, I told these guys here at Cigar Stop that they made a mistake. That First off, the cigar is worthy of a number one. It's a great taste cigar. It's an amazing cigar. But really, they should have given it to somebody that has given them dollars in the past. Yeah. <laughs> Giving it to a guy that hasn't spent a nickel with them is not exactly a good business strategy. Not, not good business not practice. Not good business practice. It actually <laughs> was an error in the editing, but once the page is live, <laughs> yeah. you go back what are you going to do? switch it around. As always, you know, we were just talking about this earlier, we, we sort of assume... That people who are coming across this podcast have no idea who anybody is or hearing all this right. shit for the first time. Uh, so we don't have to spend a lot of time on this. Right. But for the sake of that person, let's get into some introductory well, stuff. Let me kind of precursor yeah, sure. that. Oddly enough, I'm like incredibly well known in the cigar industry. Sure. And I'm incredibly well known with cigar geeks. But the average consumer has absolutely zero clue who I am. Nor should they, nor should they care even if they do. And that kind of gets lost sometimes because everybody that's in the business just instantly assumes that, oh, how do you not know who Steve Saka is? And, and the only thing, too, is we're in an industry where everybody's always telling you how great you are. Yep. And for whatever reason, regretfully, some of the people that are on my side of the fence, they actually start believing in that nonsense themselves. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you have no idea how many guys I've met and like they get offended when you go, you don't know who I am? You don't know who I am? You know what I mean? It's kind of funny. Yeah. So the truth is the average typical consumer, and I would even say the retailer that isn't really plugged in, he's probably never, ever heard of me. Mm-hmm. So for, the, for, for that guy who's never heard of you, uh, just give us a, a little, you know, abridged history of, yeah. of Steve Saka and the cigar it's business. pretty simple. Kind of a big deal. Enlisted squid. Uh, it was very, when I got out of the Navy, I enlisted when I was 17. When I got out, I started a small engineering firm that I ended up uh, getting really lucky and selling. And I made a little bit of coin and I had become a cigar smoker in the Navy. And when I made a little coin, I started spending more on cigars. And I just started on my own traveling to the Dominican and Honduras and Connecticut River Valley because I was just an uber cigar geek. Uh, in the late night, in the late eighties and going into the early nineties. And, um, I just, I was the guy that showed up at the factory and knocked on the door and said, Hey, can I come in? And back then it was before there was cigar aficionado or other publications. Right. And so it was so rare to have some white fat dude show up and actually care what they were doing in Cofredia, Honduras. And, uh, so I had kind of become friends and, um, and I was spending a lot of money on cigars, uh, on my cigars and my cigar-related travel, I was spending up to like 50, 60 Gs a year. And uh, at one point, I had a good friend of mine that was actually spending more, and we concocted this crazy scheme to start a – we didn't know it at the time. It would now today be called a blog, but okay. it was really just a website. And we really were using it just as a total tax shelter, a place to dump our expenses. He set up a humidor company with no intention of ever selling a single humidor. He was a single advertiser on my website that didn't charge him to advertise on the website. And we just basically used that as a way to funnel cash. And as a result of that, I just kind of got well-known 
amongst the the real geek circles. And it probably would have continued, but I wasn't trying to do it to be profitable. We were just trying to do it to have a way to justify the money we were wasting on our cigar-related right, yeah. endeavors. And uh, probably would have continued, but after three years, the accountant's like, guys, you can't keep showing $130,000 a year in losses and not make any money at all. This isn't going to fly forever. So you like you either have to make it into a real company or you have to, you know, just stop. And we decided to stop, you know, because we didn't want to make it into a real company. Right. We had no interest in that. But along the way, I had become, I don't want to say friends with everybody because not everybody likes you. I don't like everybody either, so that's kind of fair. But acquainted. But, but acquainted with everybody, and I was really familiar with all of the factories. And because I wasn't commercially in the business, I had no axe to grind anyway. And one of the guys that I had become friends with was a gentleman named Lou Rothman. And uh, Lou wanted me to write a book about cigars and tobacco because I was such an uber geek. I'm the guy that just would pester the living hell out of some poor farmer in Jalapa to get him to explain to me what he was doing and why he was doing it and blah, 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 blah. It was terrible. And um, so Lou wanted me to write a book about cigars and tobaccos. Most of the books that have been written are not correct. Now, they've gotten better over time, but there's a lot of things that are written about cigars and tobacco that were written incorrectly one time, but then they get parroted. And once they've gotten parroted three or four times, they kind of become they become fact. Yeah. Um, so Lou wanted me to write a book, and I went to talk to Lou about the book, and we we talked about the book for like five six minutes, maybe ten. Then it was like a debate over the best hot dog, and then the best muscle car from the late sixties. Then it just devolved into a Yankees Bo Sox conversation. Um, I don't know. Like an hour <laughs> and a half later, he's like, "Why don't you come work for me?" And I'm like, "What do you mean work for you?" And he's like, yeah, you like all this cigar crap. You like going to these crappy countries. You like having dysentery. You know what I mean? He's like, I, I don't want to go and do any of this. And I own the biggest cigar company in the country, which it was at the time. He was the number one retailer of cigars. And he owned more brands. Like, he literally, he owned Romeo and Julieta at that point in the game. You know what I mean? At one point. So, um, next thing I know, my first real job in the cigar business was working as an executive consultant. For the largest company that was in the cigar business at the time. And, you know, in hindsight, I should have paid him because I learned so much. You know, Lou wasn't really as much into cigars and tobacco as I was. But Lou was unbelievable genius when it came to the business of cigars. Yeah. And I think even today, when you meet some the older generation in our industry, they will still wax poetic about how genius Lou Rothman was and still is you know he's not in the game anymore he got bought out so i was at uh, jr for quite a few years and then uh altidus went and bought the company and um i just didn't really want to stick around uh for a variety of reasons that we won't disclose on the radio because i don't need the uh, i don't need the slander suits um but or is it libel when you say it slander or libel Slander. Slander when you say it yeah. out loud? Okay, right. great. We're not going to write it down either, so I'm going to cover right, both yeah. my bases. Yeah. And uh, after I left there, I had a non-compete, and this young punk kid who had this little scrappy company called Driste, they made all these like wacky tobacco cigars. He was kind of like, hey, you know, you want to come work with us? And I was kind of like, no. He's like, well, what if I make you president? And I was like, no. And he's like, well, what if I make you president and I make you a vested partner for no money in? I'm like, oh, this sounds kind of appealing. Uh, and next thing I know, I was president of Drew Estate from 2005 to uh, 2013. And uh, and the only reason I – and I ended up leaving Drew Estate on my own accord mostly because, you know, my wife, she just – she didn't like South Florida. You know, we moved down here. Six years, we moved six times. Like, we had come from a very kind of rural Martha Stewart-esque kind of life. And I, I got to give her credit. She toughed it out, but you guys live down here. It's it's a different world, you know. It just simply is. And you know, after six years, she's like, "I'm going home. When you're done, you know, fiddle whatever you're doing, I'll be there." So I stayed around for another year and a half, and I tried to make it work. But I was responsible for operating the Drew Estate Factory. I was the lead creative on almost all the brands that were made during that time. Um, probably the brand I'm probably most well known for. I was the creator of Liga Pravada. But I mean, I was doing pretty much a lot of stuff. And look, and look, it's like any company, it's a team effort. There are multiple people involved, you know. We tend to try to distill things down to just put one person's face because it makes it much easier to brand and market and explain to consumers. But as a team at Drew Estate, 
we really took that company from being a company that was really, you know, relatively small, minor player that really wasn't respected into becoming the third largest handmade cigar company behind Altidus in general in a period of only eight years. Yep. And it was, it was, it was you know, it was an amazing achievement for everybody involved. Um, when I decided that I wanted to leave, I was going to keep my shares, but the attorneys, they were worried that somewhere down the road, I would lay claim to all these things. And eventually they talked, uh, the other partners are saying, you know, you really got to buy this guy out, you know? And, uh, so we worked out a deal where they bought me out and I had a two year non-compete and I ended up starting a little small family company called Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust. And it's still operating that way now, three years later. And I started the company kind of with the premise, look, when I was at JR, there were 1,500 employees. When I left Drew, we were up like around 1,700. Um, I really wanted to, look, as fat as I am, I'm probably going to live another 20 years. So even if you really can retire, do you really want to retire? And I really enjoy cigars. I enjoy tobacco. I enjoy cigars. I genuinely enjoy the company of cigar smokers, so I, I always wanted to get back into it, but it's much different now. Present company excluded. Right. Yeah, yeah. well, you know, you we, all, we all have our crosses to bear, <laughs> but I, you know, I wanted to do something which would keep me involved, but it, it's far less aspirational now. I don't have some grand plan master scheme that I want to take over the world, and, you know, it's more I want to be able to do what I enjoy doing. And I don't want to really worry about making products because I'm worried about market share or position. So I pretty much only make things that I personally really like to smoke myself. I only make things that I would actually physically go into the store. And if that product is $8, $12, $22, that I would actually spend the $22 to buy. You know what I mean? And it's all, it's very, um, it's really kind of like a personal hobby gone awry. You know what I mean? Uh, is kind of more where it's at. And look, and it's, you know, it's a real, I always joke around that I have the worst career path in the cigar business. I've been working my way down from the tops for the last 20 odd years. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's by choice and, you know, I'm content. And at the same time, though, I'm also miserable because I'm naturally a miserable guy. Um, I'm super self-critical of everything um, that we do. You know, with most products i have a lot of gray but with my products it's either really great or it really sucks there's like no middle ground for me um you know it's uh i kind of took that that you know the name of the number one scar sin compromiso means you know without compromise right and that was kind of what my intent was with this that i just wanted to do everything the way i wanted to do it and not worry about having to play the game, not worry about having to do these things for marketing, not worry about, oh, my God, I got to make ball caps for everybody. Oh, my God, I got to take so-and-so to dinner. Oh, my God, I got to kiss the ring of this retailer or that retailer. Um, this magazine and that magazine. <laughs> yeah, you know, I just I just wanted to do my own thing. Yep. And, you know, can, you know, if people smoke it and they like it and they buy it, I'm genuinely thankful. I'm really appreciative. Okay, I'm not a moron. But at the same time, I didn't want to have, I didn't want to have partners. I didn't want to have debt. I just wanted to be able to do what I wanted to do, and that's kind of been the way we've approached it. And look, you know, we've been in business now for three years, and we've been very blessed. Every brand we've released has made the top three consensus. And what the consensus is is, um, there's one particular website that takes all the top lists from all the various media's and they average them together. You know. And uh, every brand that I have made has made in the top three every single year. And, uh, you know, I'm really proud of that consistent level of performance and acknowledgement. But at the same time, I'm also very, um, I'm still hypercritical of everything. Sure. You know. So you, you, you brought up, I want to rewind in, in a second and sort of, and talk about the company more broadly, but you brought up Sin Compromiso and, you know, I, I want to make sure that we that we get into that too. So, uh, as we said, this was our number one cigar of the year on our list of the top twenty-five of twenty seventeen. There it is. There's the horn. Uh, you have no idea how much money they spend on the technology to do that. That's just something else. <laughs> There's a big horn button <laughs> sitting here. Uh, so uh, I'm going to go ahead and read uh, 
I'm going to read the thing we wrote. How's that? Yeah. Yeah, so, especially since I think Steve loved it. So, in yeah, our, I uh, love it. <laughs> on the uh, on that uh, that ranking, we wrote the following. So, when Steve Saka launched Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust in 2015, anybody who knew him and his history understood it was only a matter of time before his boutique cigar brand forced its way into the top 25 conversation. Even knowing how credible and capable Steve is, though, which we just talked a little bit about, what makes you so credible with that that history. Uh, Nobody could have predicted a cigar like Sin Compromiso. We smoked and we smoked and we smoked some more, not because we had to settle differences on this ranking, but because we aren't used to total unanimity. Never has the consensus been so strong on a pick for Cigar Snob's Cigar of the Year. Sin Compromiso, with its deep, dark uh, flavors, rich aromas, impeccable construction, complexity, and unwavering excellence from the first time we tried it uh, in July until our most recent tastings this month, was the universal pick among our tasters for this number one spot. And none of that is bullshit. Um, yep. I remember uh, at the show, there's sometimes a cigar that, there's never a guarantee, but that we're already saying, like, this is, unless something blows our well, mind. You, you basically, you smoke cigars at the show, and the problem with you have cigars at the show is you're smoking a lot of cigars, yep. so things get lost in the mix. A lot of times you smoke a cigar at the show, and what you smoke at the show is not what ultimately ends up in the box Correct. when it yep. gets delivered to the consumer. That's regretfully far more common than it ever should be. And, um, you know, it's it's one of these things where, you know, you, you just, you ultimately, tasting something at the show is not a reflection of what you're ultimately going to get when exactly. it hits the retail So show. we're always cautiously optimistic because there were things at the show, without naming any names, but there were things at the show that blew us away then. And we know to expect that some percentage of those are going to be dog shit by the end of the year uh and this was not the case here um so you mentioned not having any compromises and i think that that's something that a lot of people say not a lot every single person everybody who makes a cigar that's says, the thing in our business everybody says they use the best tobacco everybody says they have the best quality right. control everybody says that it's magical i mean it's just it's part and parcel and you know what are you supposed to say right are you supposed to say you know and i, I look i just got criticized by a very good friend of mine um, I did a project for him, and I was being a little critical about the cigar amongst a group of consumers of my own work product. It's like you can't do that, you know. He's like you, you know. It, it's like, you know, you have to tell them that it's always the greatest thing since sliced bread. Thing is, I want everything to be the greatest since sliced bread, and when it isn't. I'm just I'm critical of it. It's like, well, you know, I really wish it was a little bit more open. I feel like well, it's a that's little part too of how you make sure it means something when you are excited about something you've done. Yeah, I mean, look, it's there's one of the beauties of Liga Pravada was when consumers first smoked it, they not only didn't have an expectation, they actually expected it to be bad. They knew the history of the company. The average traditional cigar smoker is thinking only of Drew Estate as the acid company. So when they smoke that cigar for the very first time, they're like, oh, my God. Yep. I, not only is it smokable, it's actually amazing. I mean, it was, it was like it way delivered, way more than what their expectations are. For good or for bad, the problem that I suffer under now is the expectations of everything I make starts off with, oh, my God, it has to be incredible. Yeah, it's got to blow my mind. It's got to blow me away. And that's an incredibly difficult thing because everybody's perception of what blows them away is different. Yeah. I can make a very consistent blend. I can make a very good blend. I can make one that draws and burns well. But ultimately, to hit that hype expectation. So it's a point where I'm not even the guy hyping it. Okay, It's other people hyping on my behalf. And you would think that would be good. But it also works against you because when you don't deliver... It disappoints the consumer, sure. and that's a real challenge. And you know the problem—the problem is I have that burden every time to hit a home run. You know what? I can't just have any like, oh, that's a really nice double. You know what yeah. I mean? So, so talk a bit <laughs> yeah. about about what goes into this, and because th- there is a lot to back up that without compromise idea behind the name. Uh, from how you're sourcing the tobaccos to all that. So, talk a bit about what goes into this product. I mean. One of the things that one of the things that's a general trend with my blends is I tend to blend all on the medium to full size, full side for the most part. It's not that I don't make mild cigars, not that I don't enjoy mild cigars, but everything I've released is kind of in that medium plus range. With Sober Besa being the most medium, yep. and you know Todos Las Dias being the the most 
the most robust. So I've got that as a general trait, and that's really just a reflection of who I am as a cigar smoker. Uh, the second thing, though, I don't tend to make anything that's like super uber peppery. And it's not that I don't enjoy super uber peppery cigars. I like Skip's Neanderthal. I like Lito Gomez's Double Lajeros. You know, there's a wide variety of those cigars that I enjoy. The problem has to do with how I personally smoke. I smoke in an average day 10 cigars typically. So for me, what I want is I want a cigar to be strong enough that I find it very satisfying when I'm smoking it. But I also want it to have a very good repeat factor so that I'm like when I'm getting to the end of the cigar I'm currently smoking, I'm already thinking about the next cigar that I want to smoke. So what that means is I don't tend to make really uber, uber pepper bombs. It's just not in my nature. Um, so that's always kind of a focus for me. You know, with Sin Compromiso, I want to try to make a blend. One of the things that's the most difficult to do, there are two things that are really difficult to do. The first one is to make a mild-bodied cigar that is satisfying. And the other thing, too, that's very difficult with mild blends is you have no room to hide. When you make a really strong blend, you have so much you have so much latitude that yeah. little minor differences don't dramatically in any way no, impact because the lost. blend. Because they get lost in it. Yeah. The strength helps to hide Absolutely. these sins. So you can't hide in the mild arena. And on the strong side, it is so hard to make a strong, full-flavored, robust cigar that's also simultaneously creamy. Okay, and that was really what the goal was for me with Sin Compromiso, is I wanted to make a cigar that was inherently tobacco sweet. I wanted to make a cigar that was rich and satisfying and full-bodied, where it felt like you were putting a piece of Godiva chocolate in your mouth and letting it melt. But I also wanted it to have a very creamy texture to it. I wanted it to be like when you have a, a really favorite strong spicy cigar and you buy it and you then take it home and you leave it in your humidor for four and five years. Yep. And all that goodness, just kind of the edges get rounded off from it. And it makes it really, I wanted that to be an experience where the consumer didn't have to buy it and set it aside for four or five years that he could actually get that experience off the shelf, right? off the shelf yeah. jump out of the box. And so that was kind of where I wanted to go with it. And um, that kind of dictated the tobaccos. And the other thing that I wanted to do is I wanted to make something. Look, there are only so many growers and there's only so many tobacco brokers. And all uh, many of us are using all the same materials. We all use it a little differently. We ferment it a little differently. We age it a little differently. But ultimately, a lot of the ingredients are very shared. I wanted to make something that would actually, to the consumer that does smoke a lot of cigars. Like in my own case, I personally smoked a minimum of 75,000 handmade cigars in my lifetime. And I'm probably closer to like 90, 95,000. But I can guarantee on the Bible, 75,000 at least. I've smoked a lot of different cigars over the last 30 plus years. I wanted it to be something that was genuinely unique and not me just saying it was unique. So with Sin Compromiso, there's six tobaccos in it. And of the six tobaccos, five of them were cultivated exclusively just for Sin Compromiso. Now, since before I even released Sin Compromiso, I used one of those five tobaccos in the Todos Las Dias blend. But even to this day, four of those tobaccos are only being currently used in Sin Compromiso. They are literally unique to that They're cigar. They're literally yeah. unique to that one cigar. There's not a single cigar in the marketplace that is using a single one of those four tobaccos out of the six. And the fifth tobacco, the only product using it, is one of my products too, Todos Las Dias. And the other thing that I wanted to do is I wanted to play around with doing a couple different wrapper projects. Because, you, you know, wrapper is such a key element to the cigar. And I kind of had gone down two paths. I had a Sin Compromiso Liga that was utilizing a Desperado-grown Nicaraguan that I was working on with my friends at the uh, Liva Tobacco Company. And I had another separate path that was going on this crazy idea. I had read this article about these Japanese farmers that grow something. It's a musk melon. But these particular farmers grow something called a Royal Crown musk melon. And what a Royal Crown musk melon is, the first thing you got to know about a Royal Crown musk melon is they cost $120 to $250 for one melon, okay? Yeah, it's crazy, right? And what they do is they have this vine that would normally support 18 to 22 musk melons. And as the blossoms begin to come onto the vine, they actually take them all off but two. And they only let two of those blossoms convert into melons. And then they pick which melon they like the best, 
And in the end, they throw the other melon away and they only cultivate one melon on a vine that would normally grow 22 melons. And then they treat that melon like it's Kobe beef. They sing to the melon, they tell it stories, they massage it. So it's just this crazy thing. And what they claim is that by doing this, it ends up producing a melon that's just juicier, fleshier, sweeter, more supple in the mouth. And listen, it's true. If you buy, you can buy one of these melons. They are amazing yeah, I'm, melons. I'm looking okay? it up. Right after now, the Seika it, thing, is, I looked this up. Is it worth 200 bucks for that melon? Look, we can have that conversation. Mm-hmm. But there is definitely a difference between one of these Royal Crown Japanese musk melons compared to a regular musk melon. It's a different, different experience. And I kind of like, well, you know, why can't we try this with tobacco? Well, the reason you don't try it with tobacco is everything at the farming level is always based on yield. You just put so much land, so much fertilizer, so much labor, and you're trying to generate as many pounds as possible in a given manzano, okay, or hectare or whatever, regular hectare. So I needed to convince a farmer to actually grow a tobacco plant in a way where I'm saying to him, I want you to literally throw away half of the tobacco in the field. I don't even want you to let it to leaf out. Just as it begins to leaf, I want you to tear them off and throw them away. So- Taking off half the right tobacco. Down the toilet. We got that audio. Yeah, that's good. Half <laughs> look, people have to use the bathroom. You know, so ha- half of the tobacco is stripped off the plant, but half of the tobacco being on the lower end of the plant really means I'm giving up 65% of the weight from jump. Yeah. Okay, because the leaves are bigger, so they make more weight. But I have to pay the farmer a hundred percent because it isn't his fault that I'm a moron and I want to throw away half of the tobacco before he even grows. But the concept being that by having this stock, it's received with less leaves on it. It's receiving a greater nutritional value, which will then make the leaves inherently fleshier, more oily, more, uh, you know, just kind of amp up the properties that are already existing in it. And um, he has a very romantic name that he gave the project. I, I started just calling it Cultivo Tanto, which means foolish cultivation, because it really is moronic what we're doing. And, and the only thing, too, is you always so want... you call it Cultivo Tonto. He calls it what? He's, I can't even remember. It's something that's very romantic. And, and it's just... It, I, I All right, know. so yeah. uh, Nick, ask our uh, our Twitter I'll, followers to I'll, uh, I'll, I'll come find, up with a name. Let, let, me, let me ask. I'll, I'll find out. But, you know... There but, will be names. Uh, the, people no, will is, come up with names no, for you name. on his Twitter. Name is, his name's Carlos Guzman. He grows tobacco in San Andreas Tuxel. And I use a lot of Mexican San Andreas from him. So I buy normal tobacco from him, and I buy this crazy tobacco from him. Um, I was really in love with the whole concept of the project. But the other thing that you always got to consider yourself is, are you just buying into your own nonsense? You know what I mean? Because you kind of come predisposed to this, like, well, I'm doing all this crazy stuff, and I'm spending all this crazy money. Is it really better? So I ultimately had the factory um, make me 50 with the standard San Andreas, that I buy from the very same farm and the very same farmer, and 50 with the Cultivo Tanto. And you really can't identify the difference visually. It's almost impossible. But I was actually 100% I could tell the difference from cigar one to cigar two. You were 100%, 100% right? 100%. Blind every time you tasted blind it? blind every time. Wow. And at that point... I'd love to try that. At that point, it made me buy in. You know what I mean? Yeah. And once I bought in, it then like, okay... Now, I have faith in it, and I can tell people about this, and I don't feel – because so much – look, we're in an industry where we sell stuff. It's dried weeds rolled up in a tube. Everything is brown and round. So every single company, every single marketing division is trying to come up with some sort of story, some sort of sizzle to put with that product because they're trying to capture your the attention of the consumer, yeah. and I don't blame them. But it's so much better – if it be more than just a story that was invented in an office in Miami, that there actually be some element of truth, and even better if it's entirely the truth. Um, and that's what really kind of sold me on the whole thing, once I could tell 100% of the time the difference. And, and that's kind of what led me into the project. And uh, I'm – look, I love all my blends. And I think one of the things that's very unique about my product line is if you talk to consumers, I don't have one that's universally favored. Most companies have one product that yeah. becomes the one that everybody says, that's the best cigar he makes. I have consumers that swear Sober Mesa is the best cigar I make. I have consumers that swear Miki Rita. I have consumers that swear Umbagog. Every brand I make, there's a consumer out there that says, that's really the best one you make. And it's pretty evenly divided. I personally, 
I have a real affinity for Sin Compromiso. I just, I love the way it turned out. I love the way it smokes. Uh, to me, it's arguably one of the very best blends I've probably made in the last 30 years. Now, whether it will see long-term commercial success, I honestly don't know. But I do know that I couldn't, there's nothing that I could do as a blender, as a tobacco buyer, at the and working at the factory level that I could do, that I think I could do to make it better. I, I'm really, I'm really ecstatic about how the product turned out. Yep, and, and that, that's that's a very good feeling. But just because I'm happy with it, who knows? You guys obviously liked it. Hence yeah, you, we thought it, we thought it was okay. Yeah, it was all right. <laughs> so I mean, that's a, that's a good sign. And but at the same time, you know, I have customers. I have a guy he smokes four sober mess a day. He he wrote me and said, "Oh man, I didn't like it at all. Wow, you know, yep. it didn't suit his fancy. He yep. bought, but he kept buying boxes of it because he wanted to like it." You know, and I'm like, dude, stop. You don't have to like it. You know what I mean? That's the thing about cigars. Cigars are very personal. And I, and I have this general adage that if you try to make something that everybody likes, you're ultimately creating something that nobody loves. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You you want to have a little bit of uniqueness, a little bit of diversity. That was one of the things that I loved about Ligas. I always loved those Ligas in those early years. They had a bit of roughness to them. They had a bit of dirtiness to them. It was like a really elegant cigar with impeccable materials, but it still had a little bit of that old school grit to it. You know what I mean? In case in point, that's that's a cigar that consumers – I don't want to say that there's a lot of people that hate it, but there is definitely this core group that is in love with Liga. Right. Like uh, Ramon. Ramon is a... Oh, my God. Yeah, my sister's husband. Holy yeah, crap. Yeah, yeah. He's a Liga nut. Yeah, look, and I, and I was smoking 10 to 12 a day. Look, when I left your estate, I left with 7,000 Liga Provadas in my personal collection. You know what I mean? Just for me to smoke alone. Three weeks later, he was at the yeah. store. Buying <laughs> so... Did you have anything else that you wanted to get into? I mean, I'm sure we'll end up talking about Sin Compromiso, but any other stuff you wanted to make sure before we shift gears here a little bit? No, no. I mean, uh, one of the things that I looked up while we were while we were talking, I looked up Seca. the... Uh, no, I did, aside <laughs> from Seca, and uh, this musk melon that I must get. Uh, by the way, it was 112 bucks. You can, oh, it's, that's it's a, a bargain. Deal. Yeah, it's a deal. Yeah. So, uh, no, but I did look up my... Uh, or our post from IPCPR, where we really did think... At that point, it was the the cigar of the show. Yeah, and uh, and so that has happened before, where we've said, "Oh wow, this is the cigar of the show," and then when it comes top twenty five time, when we come back around and taste everything, uh, they're just not they're not the same. They're nowhere near the same cigar. Well, there's so, also there's another six months of, of cigars course. that have been introduced, of course, that is now competing with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so. but this one, uh, this was one of those where it, it was. What we tasted at the show was the same thing we tasted at the end of the year, and and it just it blew us away every time. And blind, by the way, we do every time taste blind, and there was nothing. Yeah, but can you really smoke that cigar blind? It's got a certain kind of press to it. No, yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah. When, when you're smoking, because I can that al- many cigars, says, I blind. can almost always identify my own cigars. Of course, just oh, looking yeah. at them. But I mean, yeah. we tasted. It was you're talking about. <laughs> tasting 10 to 12 a day blind right. and you there's no way you can keep track of what was what and this and there's no way so right. you can't you can't tell what it was and not only that but over uh, the I course think, of a year maybe i mean uh, me personally maybe i'd smoke that cigar four times total right among all the things that we were smoking so it's not i, I don't think it's as branded into our brains yeah. as it would be for you or a lot of other people there, right. there are cigars that you cannot Smoke blind, right? Right. Like, you can't smoke an Adelaysian bull blind. Correct. But and the moment you see, you're like, oh, well, that's an Adelaysian bull. Yeah. Yep. But uh, and, and certain padrones. Yeah. You get it, and you know exactly what it is right when you get it. Uh, this is this. I wouldn't put this in that category where we knew what it was. Uh, not only that, but we wouldn't have had any uh, motive to say, "Ooh, I really want to get this up to the top." There was none of that, right? Because right. uh, again, as you mentioned earlier, not that a single to my dime advantage. was spent. Right. Yeah. So. Uh, so yeah, no, it, it really did live up, uh, from, from day one, it was the same cigar, uh, after the show and, uh, yeah, obviously we loved it. And look, and the goal is not that it be the same cigar after the show, 
the goal is for it to be the same cigar next year and three years after that and 10 years after that. I mean, that's always the biggest challenge that we on our end have, you know, and, you know, this this concept that, oh, well, it changes with the crop cycles. That's just utter nonsense. It doesn't change with the crop cycles. It changes leaf to leaf. I mean, this is an organic material. So actually, in order to make something consistent for the consumer, you actually have to be constantly micro-tweaking the blend depending on the materials that are on the bench. And you have to be working with boncheros that understand what the experience is that you want to deliver to the customer, how you want them to feel the cigar, how the, you know you want it to be not that, oh, well, here's the recipe and follow this recipe like it's a baking recipe. It's not like that at all. It's much more like a, a chef with a pan where he's constantly, oh, well, you know what, a little bit more salt. These tomatoes are a little bit more acidic. So in this case, I'm going to add a little bit of something, a little bit more honey than I normally would, a little bit more sugar than I normally would because what you really want is you want the experience for the consumer to be a consistent smoking experience you don't actually want the recipe to be this is the recipe and it's you know put into stone and that's one of the things that gets lost with so many of the cigars in the marketplace that they're not constantly doing that micro tweaking and adjusting on the fly to be fair though there are there are plenty of companies that do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah to be fair. Yeah, there are. No, yeah, there yeah, are yeah. some. And you see it, though. Of course. You, you, I mean, we, we had this conversation off air that I pick up a Padron today, and it literally tastes the same as the 1926 tasted when I was smoking them back in the, the late 90s. Wildly consistent. You know what I mean? I yeah. know exactly what I'm getting when I reach into that box. I know exactly what I get when I'm reaching to a box of uh, Double Arrow Chisels. That's been very solid through and through. There's other products that I absolutely loved. And a year or two years later, I'm kind of like, wow, you know, this is a pale shadow of what it used to be. Sure. Now, the uh, the other thing, though, is the trick uh, in terms of what you were talking about, the boncheros, having to uh, work like a chef. Yeah. Uh, I just want to clarify for the listeners that they're doing that without smoking the tobacco that's on the table well i actually make them smoke the cigar you do yeah all the boncheros for all of my yeah but they can't do that from cigar to cigar yeah but what ends up happening is over time they kind of start to learn that oh well the central rib in this particular leaf is a bit thicker so it's going to give me a little bit more punch let me frog strip this one a little bit more and not just take it the way it was handed to them on the bench. You know, they, they start to realize, oh, well, you know, this particular piece of Lajero, it's not quite as large as the other Lajeros. So I'm going to pick up an extra half a strip of Lajero and I'm going to add it to this one where, you know, the other 22 cigars that, yeah. I made before it, it doesn't have that extra half a strip. You know, exactly. what I yeah, mean? that was the point. I was... They, you know, they, they learn, but they, they, they have to smoke. If they don't smoke, that's a problem. Yeah. So kind of in that same, uh, along the same lines, talk a bit about uh, your relationship with Hoya, which right. manufactures a cigar. Talk a bit about uh, why them and what, what is the, uh, what's the experience like of, of partnering with them on this? There's only three things that you need to make great cigars. One is really great materials. The second is standard practices, methodologies, procedures. And the third is just being an absolute dick about the first two. Okay. Um, so those are the three primary requirements. When it comes to choosing a factory partner, the challenge that you have is you're basically putting your faith in them to execute what you want them to do. And if you're not physically there on a day-to-day basis, and I'm there a lot for a white dude, I'm typically there at least a week of every month, which is kind of unusual for a guy like me. But, and I also have the added advantage that I actually know what they're doing, which helps a lot because you can definitely be far more critical if you understand what they're doing. Um, Hoya, the family, the Martinez family is a great family and they're just really super duper honorable and they understand they will execute what I want them to execute. And on the opposite of this coin, the way we come up with the prices between me and them is not a adversarial like, well, I really need it to be 15 cents less. I need it to be this. I need it to be that. Because I know exactly what everything really costs. And what will end up happening is we'll work out those numbers together. We'll figure it out. We'll say, okay, well, the factory needs to make X amount of percentage of profit, so we'll bump it up there. And then I'll say, you know what? I'm going to be extra, extra super critical. So guess what? I'm actually going to pay you more than what you think 
because I know I'm going to be that big a pain in the ass. And it's a very, um, it's much more a partnership style relationship. But what that requires is it requires good faith on both sides of the table. So ultimately, you need to have a very honest relationship and one where both parties actually understand what's really going on and you are collectively working towards a common goal rather than it just because for so many products that, you know, where you don't own and operate the factory, it's really very transactional. Okay, I want you to make 200 boxes of this every month and I'm going to pay you X for these boxes and then you're going to get them in and you're either going to be happy with them, you're not going to be happy with them and then you're going to have a fight over it. And uh, we work very, very closely together and that really kind of stemmed from my relationship at Drew Estate because, you know, while I was at Drew Estate, we ended up taking over the U.S. distribution of all the Hoya to Nicaragua products. And that's when I started, rather than having a cursory relationship with them, I started having an intimate relationship with them. And really, for me, this is kind of where this has grown out of. And so for me, they're the absolute perfect partner. And the other thing, too, is I genuinely, in my heart, feel as though they're the best factory in Nicaragua. They haven't always made the best cigars in Nicaragua. They've gone through some periods where they got a little stale and they let things slip a little bit. But I know that, you know, particularly with the the sea change, you know, I mean, the whole factory is just completely a different world from what it was even just five years ago, even to the blind eye consumer that really has no way to judge. But even that guy can go and go, wow, this is really quite amazing. And the thing is, you know, their heart and soul is in it. And they genuinely, I... I immensely respect them, and I think they respect me. And as a result, we can do some amazing things together that wouldn't necessarily be possible at some of the other factories. And and uh, and it, it's just uh, so for me, they're a perfect partner. I also use another factory, uh, Mikirita and Umagog, is made at Nicaraguan American. And Nicaraguan American is traditionally known as a factory that makes economy bundle style cigars. They don't really, up until recently, they never really made uh, a hand. They were always handmade, but they weren't making entirely bunched by hand, you know, that kind of level of cigar. But I've always had an incredibly close relationship with the Oliva Tobacco family. Oliva uh, Cigar Company, in our industry, we kind of refer to them as Alavita, the small Olivas. The big Oliva, Oliva Tobacco Company, they supply wrappers and tobaccos to almost every company in our industry. And they're, they're an owner in that Noxa factory. And they wanted me to come and kind of do what I did to Drew Estate. Drew Estate was pretty much making a particular genre of cigar. And they wanted me to try to say, hey, this is what you do to make a X-grade style cigar. And, uh, and, and that's what we've done. And, and even the changes that we have made to make Mikirita and Umbagog possible at that factory, that's actually reflected in all the other stuff they did. And now that company in their other products has been growing tremendously and is becoming more profitable. They're not as sexy because they don't have a face to the company, but they have a general manager, master cigar maker there. His name's Raul Dizla. And for the geek consumer, uh, Diesla, Esteban Diesla is the maker at, uh, at Mike Rosales and uh, Skip Martin's Roma Craft. Well, Raul is Esteban's brother. And Raul, he used to work at Davidoff. And Raul used to be a demo roller on, you know, going across the world a lot the way Papin Garcia did. And then Raul was actually in charge of production over at uh, AJ Fernandez, he's a very capable, very competent, very experienced cigar maker. So it was really kind of giving them a project where we could work together and, you know, step up the game a little bit. Not take away from what you currently are doing because it's very important, but also add another element. And I'm, I'm, really, I'm really proud of the work that we do there. But from a technical perspective, Hoya is technically a more capable factory to make the high-end ultra premium. But for many, many years, Hoya kind of got locked into a bubble of all Antonio. Mm -hmm. Everything kind of was a certain genre. You know, they kind of got, I don't want to say lazy because that's not fair. It's almost complacent in a way. 
And, you know, they collectively about five years ago decide, hey, let's break out of this. And it's taken them five years. But I I genuinely in my heart, I feel like they're I feel that I truly believe they're the best factory in Nicaragua and they deserve a lot more accolades. And it's really it's really rewarding to me that um, their uh, Cinco de Cadas this year. Um, it was also one of the top cigars, and it got quite a few number ones on its own from a variety of sources, and it's well deserved. Uh, I mean, it's uh, you know, they're they're a perfect partner. And the other thing that's kind of weird is in our business, so much of the factory, the actual bunching and the passing of the wrapper is so romanticized. But the truth is, the factory is where you actually screw up good cigars. It's only three minutes in a process. It takes anywhere from two to four years. Yep. So it's kind of like that's actually it's not where the magic happens. The magic is already done yep. before it ever hits the bench. And the question is, do they mess it up? Is really the question. Yep. How much and, did they take away? Yeah. You know what? What damage did they do? Yep. I mean, yep. if you hand a chef cheese whiz and marshmallow, he can only do so much. You know. And but you hand a chef, you know, black truffle and you know lobster and you know this particular butter from France. He can make something magical, but he could also screw it up, and you can have the very best ingredients and totally destroy the dish. They can hammer it, you know, and that's the thing with a factory. At the factory, at that level, it's really – factory is where you, you, you can't make a great cigar at the factory level if you don't have great materials to start with. But you definitely can take great materials and turn them into crap yeah. very quickly. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, – do you want to – do you want to get into because we may be boring people with factory talk, and yeah. we have uh, a good fifteen minutes left. So I wanted to talk about some of the other lines. Yeah, right. Specifically, the one I'm smoking. I'm now. Well, I finished my sin compromiso, and I'm on the nacatamal. Nacatamal. Yeah. So I think people wonder what the hell, who the hell would call a cigar nacatamal. Yeah. Well, some people might be wondering what the hell is a Nakatamale. Yeah. Well, yeah, those Nakatamale, that are not Nicaraguans in the audience. Nakatamale. I mean, let me first preface. Well, sorry, in Spanish we would say Nakatamal. Right. Yeah. In Nicaragua, they'll sometimes just say Nakatamal. Yeah. But it's either one is correct. Um, first off, part of is the Nakatamal is part of the Muestra de Saca line. Yep. And what the Muestra de Saca line is, is every individual cigar is a unique, independent not only Vitola, but also a unique independent uh, blend or Liga. And they're all personal challenge projects. So like the very first one was Exclusivo. And in Exclusivo, all the tobaccos used in the Exclusivo are five to seven years old, which most manufacturers would use that as a big selling point. To be honest with you, I typically don't like tobaccos that have five to seven years of age on them. They tend to lose a little bit too much of their life, too much of their zest. Yep. You know, So for me, the challenge on that was, can you make a cigar that you personally would buy and smoke using tobaccos that are really, in my opinion, a bit overaged? Past, yeah. you, know what I mean? you know, for my personal taste buds. Um, the Nakatamali, the challenge on that project was, you know, Sin Compromiso, six tobaccos in that blend. Miki Rita, six tobaccos. Sobra Mesa, seven tobaccos. Over the last 20 years, we have gotten where we at the manufacturing and at the blending end have been making incredibly complex cigars with a wide variety of tobaccos grown in a wide variety of regions and countries and hybridized seeds. This is not the way cigars were made before that. You didn't have all these options of no, material. Of and in fact, all cigars were made pretty much one tobacco for the filler, and you were just using, you know, the Seiko Viso yeah. Lajero, and you were just using the different primings, and one tobacco for the wrapper and the banda, the stuff that was ugly became the banda, the stuff that was pretty became the wrapper, and most cigars were made literally out of just two tobaccos, and it's actually the way most Cuban cigars are made course, today. They yeah. grow basically two different seeds, a wrapper seed and a, and a filler seed, and the vast majority of Cuban cigars are made just using two tobaccos. The question for me was, could you make a cigar using those old techniques, and I call it Via Granja, which is farm style, old farm style cigar. Could you make a cigar using those old techniques where you don't have a lot of variety in tobacco, you only have what you have, and the only way you introduce any complexity is by how you ferment the individual leaves, how you age the individual leaves, and then how you position the individual leaves within the cigar could you make something that would have enough nuance, enough complexity, enough uh, enough to hold 
up to the standard of what we currently judge yeah. as cigars in today's market. In yeah. today's market, and that was what the blending challenge was with the Naka Tamale, um, you know, and uh, I'm I'm incredibly pleased with the results of that cigar. It's actually one of my personal favorite blends, and even though there's only two materials in it. It's actually, from a technical point of view, it's actually one of the most complex blends, oddly enough, because you are trying to make, you only have these three mushrooms, two mushrooms. How do I make a complete composed dish yeah. out of just these two mushrooms? And uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's actually one of my favorite cigars. It's, it's excellent. I, uh, I hadn't smoked one in a long time, and I'm really enjoying it. It's got a... a a really good balance of of these savory notes yeah. with these background sweet notes. Really well done cigar. I, I I'm loving it. I hadn't smoked it in a long time. And it's one of my personal favorites. It really it. is. Really digging it. And it comes in a six by forty eight. But it's a unique savory. It's not. It, it's. But that's part of. That's also part of my thing. Look, I have one cigar in my portfolio that's similar to another cigar. My favorite personal daily cigars in the 80s were made by a cigar maker named Frank Inesa and Estella Padron. Frank Inesa owned a factory called Villazon in northern – it was in both southern and Don Lee and then in Cofradia. His master general manager maker that was on at the factory floor every day was a man named Estella Padron, yep. who was the brother of the world-famous Jose Orlando Padron Sr. And they used to make a cigar before they were bought out. Hoya de Monterey and Punches, and they were a rather rustic Connecticut broadleaf style of cigar. And that was always my, it's the one kind of jammy jam that even after 30 years, that's always been kind of like my go-to signature kind of flavor profile. But they were making cigars in a very inexpensive, they were always very cost conscious. Uh, at that time, Connecticut Broadleaf was considered an inferior tobacco. Consumers weren't willing to look at it as elegant. And really, the Liga Pravada was patterned after those cigars that Estello and Frank made, just better quality materials, better construction, more attention to detail. But it was really just an elevated recreation. That number nine was an elevated recreation of all those cigars I smoked for so many years that Frank and Estello made. And really, for me, Mi Querida, okay, now, even though the Mi Querida blend is not the same as Frank's or Estello's, and it's not the same as Liga Pravada number nine, other than the wrapper, and even the wrapper isn't 100% identical, because I buy it from a different farmer, and I use the mediums rather than using the number one darks, it gives me that personal experience, that real earthiness, that... uh you know, that loamy, it's got that little bit of dirtiness to it. It's got that inherent broadly sweetness. So that cigar is a kind of a common thread. But all my other blends, I try to make something in Sobremesa, Todos Las Dias, Naka Tamale, Sin Compromiso. I try to make something where I feel like, what do you compare this to on the shelf? What is like this cigar? And I try to make it where it isn't just like that cigar, that yeah. it is something unique. For the consumer, where they can have a totally different style of experience. And like when I first did the Todos Las Dias blend, I knew I wanted to make something peppery. And I made a gazillion blends for that cigar. And in the end, I kept smoking like, it's really good, but why would I buy this instead of buying a cigar made by Papin Garcia? You know, Papin does this genre so well between his own house brands and the brands that Peekett's made for him. I'm like, there's no real reason for there to be another one of these kind of pepper bomb, real spicy, lean, racy style smokes. These guys already make great cigars that are like that. So why add it? So I totally went back to the table and I re-blended Todos Las Dias where it's a much different cigar. It's, uh, It's got a inherent... It's got a soft spice to it that builds on the palate slowly from the back. It's kind of like a curry or a good mole where the intensity just slowly builds. It's incredibly smooth, but it's a real nicotine bomb. You, you, when you get to the band on that cigar, you're like, oh my God, yeah, I can't believe how strong that cigar was because I smoked it all the way through and I never realized how strong it was because it's so smooth. Yeah. Um, it's like so a I, cumulative, right, so kind of like hot sauce. So I try, I try my best. To make something that's different. And look, am I always successful? I'm going to leave that to the consumers to a judge. But I know that it, it's always a key thing for me because I 
there's no reason to make something that somebody already makes well. Sure. Why? I can just, I have no problem smoking, you know, cigar made by Pete. Yeah. I keep them in my humidor. I smoke the Twy Black Label, you know? Yeah, sure. You know, so. So, so I, what about what about the name? So let's get to, to the name, Nakatamal. Ah, well, How first, got to first off, let me say this. For those of you that aren't familiar with Nicaragua, and for those of you that may have visited it on short occasions, the food actually sucks in Nicaragua. It's terrible. These people just, they can't, they can't cook, okay? And it bothers my Nicaraguan friends that I say that, but look, I'm just being honest with you. They don't have, they have no food culture in Nicaragua. Um, food for Nicaraguans has always been a subsistence thing. That's it, yeah. That's what food is. I mean, even the, the, their most popular dish is something called gallapinto. It's this really bad take on rice and beans. I mean, they could add a little onion. They could add a little garlic. They could add a little salt, make it better, but they don't. You know what I mean? It's literally, it's four to five parts rice to one part, you know, this style of red bean with like very little flavor. You know what I mean? But there's... One dish in Nicaragua that I really love, and it's a naka tamale. And what a naka tamale is, is is a they take sweet baby corn and they grind it up really fine, and they make I think it's called a masa out of it. Mm-hmm. And they then take a pork that they typically grill or they roast, and they basically make it into these giant. Um, it's the way it kind of looks like a bean bag, like a giant mm-hmm. bean bag, a rectangular bean bag. And there'll typically be a little potato cut up in there and a little onion and uh, a little bit of green olive is very common in it and sometimes a little chili. Every every woman makes it a little differently. And it's heavy like a brick. And they wrap it in banana leaves. And then they basically they steam the living crap out of it is what they do. And I mean, this thing is so like boiling hot when you go to eat it, that it's almost impossible to unwrap. And it looks absolutely disgusting on the plate. It really looks like your cat vomited in a mega way, (laughs) but man, it is so freaking delicious as you start forking into that. I mean, it's just utterly great. And in Nicaragua, it's kind of considered a, um, it's a food that you would only eat on a Saturday or Sunday because it is so heavy. And it's also a food that's considered like kind of the 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 ideal meal after you're drunk. You know what I mean? Yep. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that Sunday morning. I've been boozing for two nights. This is what I'm going to eat. It's uh, and I just I I love I love naka tamales. It's actually one of my favorite things that they make there. So we, you're in Nicaragua. You're looking for a naka tamale. Where where do you go? Ah, uh, well, this is a big matter of debate. Because okay. the thing is, there's like, there's not like, there's some, there's not like any commercial naka tamales. So what you have is you have basically old women that make these every single week on a Thursday to start cooking them on a Friday to start selling on Saturday so morning. So travelers should just start so shouting down old ladies. What on the ends street. up right? So what <laughs> ends up happening is everybody has their own favorite naka tamale lady that does it the way they want. And I actually have a lady that she. Actually, makes us a, a naka tamale called a saka tamale Oof. because I want more meat yeah, more in my naka tamales. Okay, so I actually will. She knows I will tell her in advance. Hey, I'm going to be here on Saturday, so I, I, I want four of those saka tamales. And she amps up the meat and she amps up the chili for me. And she amps. She makes a a much heavier, bigger, you know, kind of thing. So yeah. I mean, it's a it's, it's a big debate. In fact, it was a big, the, the super heavy, yeah. like uh, it was a big conver- hangover meal. It's right. not enough. For yeah, Stevie no, wants. I, I want double. I, I want more of that. I want more of that asada in there. Yeah, <laughs> I'm with, I do. I'm with you. I'm with and uh, yeah, in fact, it's kind of funny because for a long time, Willie and I would have Willie Herrera from Drew State. We would have this ongoing debate about whose Naka Tamale woman was better. You know what I mean? And finally, we decided one day we were just going to have a Naka Tamale face-off, you know, and uh, I have to admit he won. I, I, liked, I liked his woman oh, better. Wow. Yeah, he, oh, wow. Yeah, he, I hope yours yeah. isn't listening. Yeah, well, you know what? She doesn't speak any English, so I'm okay. I'm safe. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I got to give credit to Willie. His, he, his old lady was better than my old lady. <laughs> but his old lady won't make me a Saka Tamale. That's true. Okay. Where my old lady, yeah, I hook her up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. (laughs) There you go. And that's the Nakatamon. Yeah. 
We should do a, a Cigar Snob Nakatamal challenge. We did the lechon. Why not? Yeah, why not? Yeah. Uh, it's just, like I said, looks absolutely disgusting. Yeah. Uh, it's very Actually, it's very similar to a Cuban tamal. We, we do a, a similar take on that. Yeah. There's just a little more different stuff in it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but it is generally this corn beanbag looking thing, like you yeah. called it. Uh, wrapped in banana leaves. It's very similar. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, almost all of those Central American and South American countries have some variation of a right. tamale. Yeah. You know, they all have their own little quirk on it. And uh, and I, I think outside of Nicaragua, probably the one that's the closest to the Naka tamale is the one they do in Colombia. It's kind of, it's mm-hmm. it's it's similar to the Naka tamale, you know. But yeah, it's sure. so just... Just, it's such a perfect food for a fat dude. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so on on the topic of food and Nicaragua, so this is a this is a little shameless. What is uh what is your favorite uh, restaurant in Esteli? All right, you have to understand. Like we were talking about before, the, By the food way, he is listen, he the, listens to the podcast. The, oh, I, well, I'm gonna tell. <laughs> The food in Nicaragua is very boring. So, like, we have a Brazilian restaurant. We have a Colombian restaurant. We have a Cuban restaurant in Nestle. We have a variety of Nicaraguan restaurants. The truth is, the only thing that they're Cuban, Brazilian, you know, I mean, there's one actually now that's actually considered a Ukrainian restaurant. The truth is, they all serve the exact same dish. Okay, so the name of the sign says it's this, but it's the same stuff over and over and over again. Um, there's this guy. Um, Darren, who opened this farm-to-table restaurant, Esteli, called Finca Sumesa, that I absolutely love because he actually makes unique and different food. Me too. And it's uh, – now, the thing that doesn't make any sense to me, he's a guy that was from California. He opened a restaurant in Costa Rica. He's now in Esteli with a farm-to-table restaurant. I think he's probably on the lamb. I think he's wanted by the FBI because it makes no sense to me that a <laughs> oh, guy that's actually talented. right yeah. is this talented is trying to make food and sell it to people in Esteli because, like I said, Esteli is not a big food culture center, and uh, and it's food you know it's more expensive as a result too because he's actually making interesting, unique stuff. Yeah. But uh, I love his restaurant; it's fantastic, and. And I try every time I'm there to always eat there, if not once or multiple times. Well, my first time because there was I, with you, by the way. I want to support him. I want him to stay in business. Yeah. And I want him to stay on the lamb. I don't want him to get caught. You know, I, I hope he isn't wanted for like the mass murder of like school children or something, you know, but I'm going to, I'm just going to turn a blind eye because the food is that good, you know? Yeah. So what I don't know, it doesn't hurt me, but it makes no sense to me that he's in Esteli. It really makes zero sense to me. <laughs> I love his place. I love it. Yeah. And then there's like craft beer. It's it's, yeah. just, it's yeah. so atypical for Esteli. Uh, Even you, the hamburger is good. You know, oh, to get yeah, a good to get a good hamburguesa in Nicaragua impossible. Not hamburger's happening. the worst in Nicaragua. I mean, it's terrible. And I mean, he makes an amazing hamburger. Uh, you know, and it's just it's it's nice. And the only thing that's cool about him is you can say to him, "Hey, Darren, I'm really interested in trying this or having this, and he'll go out of his way, yeah, you know, to make you something unique and special, and uh, it's 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 very refreshing to be in Esteli and be able to get something. I'm telling you that that first time that you, that, like I said, the first time I was with you and Skip, yeah, and the first time I was like, what the hell is this? Yeah, I didn't know this existed in Esteli. Yeah. So yeah, I, ever since I've been every single time and I go. Is, I you know, stop when by. the average person goes to Nicaragua, they come on cigar safari or they're on a trip with Nick Perdomo. You know, they're wowed by oh wow, you know that that grilled chicken was amazing. That caballo bio was amazing. You spend any real time in country and you basically eat the same seven yep. to eight things every single day, yep. every lunch, every dinner. Well, the experience that the tourist that comes in has is a much different experience than what we're having. I mean. I got to the point for a while there, I was literally just saying, you know what, give me a pound of French fries and not eating anything else because I just I just didn't need more of whatever it was, wow. you know? Wow. Because <laughs> the food was so boring. Yeah. No, I know. I'm with you. French fries aren't boring. That's hey, So there's that. There's French fries. There's always French fries. Uh, all right. What do we want to end on here? How are we, we going to wrap this up? 
I don't know how we wrap this up, but I think we just need one more horn. Here we go. To celebrate Ready? this uh, top number 25. Number one cigar, number one. cigar of the year the business. Number one cigar of the year. Oof. That's good. <laughs> that was awesome, man. Congratulations on that oh, cigar. Thank I mean, you. I'm it, deeply honored that you guys uh, were willing to recognize it in such a momentous way. Well, thank we're you. honored you came by here with all these cigars. Yeah, man. <laughs> that's, all, that's why we did it. That's the main reason. <laughs> all right, so... Again, this has been the Cigar Snob Podcast. We're here with Steve Saka. You can find us on uh, Google Play Music. Not, not the porn star. Not the porn star. Not with Saka. Not the 70s porn star. Definitely Saka. not the porn star. <laughs> <laughs> Cover your eyes now. <laughs> uh, you can find us on Google Play Music, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Uh, go to cigarsnobmag.com slash podcast for all the episodes of the podcast. We've got uh, a whole bunch of them, 67 of them, other than this one. Other, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, send any feedback that you have to feedback at CigarSnobMag.com. Steve, you want to plug any of your stuff, URLs or social nah. media, any of that stuff? <laughs> All right, whatever. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Okay, well, yeah. What, what, what can I do to top the number one cigar of the That's year? Right. That's right. You know? So there you go. All right. With that, thanks for listening. Take care. Later. Later.